Good morning to all of you. It's good to be together today. A little chilly for some. Some of us actually like this weather, but uh, it's good to be together. So let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We will continue our journey through this amazing book. And uh, taking up in chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. 23 to 26 is our text for today. Think with me for a moment as you're turning there of certain pivotal events in history that would change the world forever. I think we can think of uh, perhaps the printing press, the Gutenberg press, right, in the the uh, late 1300s, think about 1380 or so, um, but that forever changed the world. And think of like the Enlightenment that came right after that, how the Enlightenment, the ideas of the Enlightenment spread because of the printed page. And then just right after that, the Reformation. And Luther's 95 Theses were being printed and sent all over Europe. And so, you know, the world has never been the same from those handwritten, you know, uh, handwritten books. Uh, and then think of the signing of the Declaration of Independence or the Civil War here in the U.S. Things were never the same. St. Augustine wrote his literary classic, The City of God, in the 4th century, largely to refute the idea that Christianity was the cause of the fall of Rome. But in it, he gives a biblical view of history that points to one event in history that is not repeatable, and that is the death of the Son of God for the forgiveness of our sins. This event could only happen once. He sets forth a Christian view of history that is not circular as some of the Greeks thought, but it's linear. There is a beginning of time, as we discussed last time. There's a beginning. There's, there's certain turning points, but then there's a conclusion. There's a consummation. There's the, the day of judgment when everything is, is, is done. And that's the very truths that we see expounded in our text today. The writer continues to drive home the once-for-all nature of Christ and his death, its benefits to us, and how that earthly tabernacle is obsolete forever. He focuses even on his return to heaven in the ascension in our text today. So, chapter 9, if you find your place there, chapter 9, uh, verse 23. I'm going to read from 22 to 26. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not Enter a holy place made with hands, a mere, mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now... At the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Reading the next two verses. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, 
and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for the salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. What a, a glorious text. What a dense text. Let's pray and ask God's help to understand it. Father in heaven, we do confess we are weak. We are weak in our faculties to understand deep theological truths. We pray, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding into this glorious text today as we consider the powerful blood of Christ and the benefits that comes to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember the context of the book is Christ is set forth as greater than the angels, than Moses, than the Levitical priestly system. He's better than everything. And he's, 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 of a, his, he's a high priest of a superior order, not of the Levites, but by the order of Melchizedek, which we looked at for many weeks. The tabernacle scene, was, as we talked about last week, was one that was just a bloody scene. Remember, we looked at that, uh, the first covenant being inaugurated with blood. It was a bloody scene. We, remember, we said it would be rated R for violence and gore. But it's just something that God designed. Why? To show the seriousness of sin, right? And then uh, in verse 11, we saw that Christ appeared as a high priest to come. He entered the greater, more perfect tabernacle. That is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. All of the blood and gore of the millions of animals, all is fulfilled in Christ. We saw last time in verse 15, uh, for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions, that were committed under the first covenant. Those, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal life. In other words, the, the efficacy of Christ's blood was retroactive. It covers all those sins that happened under the old covenant. Kind of like, you know, the Andrew buying the recliner with the Visa card, and he enjoys it every night, but he doesn't have to pay for it till the end of the month. So too, all those Old Testament saints enjoyed the benefits of Christ by virtue of their faith and being justified by faith, their faith and trust in God, all of the benefits of being children of God, even before Christ had died. And then he draws this logic of for where there is a testament, there is a necessity, a death of the one that made it. The point of all of that shows that that, that testament, that last will and testament, is only in effect when what? When the person's alive? No, it's just a document when, they, when, they're, when they're dead. And so to the writer's point is Christ's death activated a very rich will for us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, he became poor for your sakes that you might become rich. And then that whole old covenant ceremony, we looked at it in detail. In Exodus 24, of which the writer refers from verses 18 to 21, and he concludes that section Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. By now, if you've been with us through these expositions, you know that our author uses his, his incredible literary skill. And he'll introduce a subject, and then he'll just push that aside and drive home some other truths. He'll come back to that, 
and he further develops that, and that's really what we've seen. In fact, actually from chapter 1, it says that Christ has sat down, right, in heaven. But then in chapter 8, in verse 2, he says, he's the minister in the sanctuary of a true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not men. In chapter 5, he serves as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God. And then he mentions in verse 11, I already read, that Christ is a high priest according to the things to come. And then now he comes back to this whole theme in verses 23 to 28. So we're going to look at this under three heads. You should have received an outline in your bulletin. And the first is this, why do the things in heaven need to be cleansed? You see, when you're preparing a sermon, you have to ask a lot of questions. And at, at first blush, this is, could be a very confusing verse for several reasons. We're going to unpack those. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in what sense does heaven need to be cleansed? We're going to have to uh, you know, unpack that. And then in what sense are these plural sacrifices, the better sacrifice of Christ's sacrifices, the singular? So let's look at it. First of all, verse, or, uh, verse 23, therefore it was necessary. In other words, there was no other way. That's what the writer is saying. The author returns to these earthly copies in the true heavenly sanctuary. Remember the word for copies, an outline or a sketch or a symbol of some sort. But because of the ritual ceremonies that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, it was needed of the heavenly things to be cleansed as well. Now this points back to verses 18 and 21, Exodus 24, the ratifying of the old covenant with all that blood, Moses is sprinkling, all the people, and even the 70 elders. It points back to that. They needed to be cleansed. These needed cleansing since the tabernacle has sinful people and sinful priests associated with it. The copies of the heavenly things in the earthly tent needed to be purified with blood. We've already seen that. We saw it in Exodus 24. But such cleansing was necessary, even though it was merely represented the greater realities of heaven. Now look back up in verse 22. Um, the end of that previous paragraph has that word cleanse, right? According to the law, one might say all things are cleansed with blood. You know, this is strange language, right? But then verse 23 he mentions the cleanse again. It, it, it's, a, it's a word that's repeated to hook the paragraphs together there. Now, was it really necessary for heavenly things to be cleansed? The, the heavenly sanctuary is not man-made, therefore it is untainted by sin. It does not need to be cleansed. Charles Spurgeon is helpful. He says, these things down below are only the patterns, models, of the symbols of the heavenly things. They could therefore be ceremonially purified with the blood, which was a symbol of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Well, why then, we might ask? Heaven became a sanctuary for God's people, and it's only when the blood of Christ was shed for them. Christ's blood then becomes the basis of our entrance into heaven. It secures our place in heaven. Now, it's our consciences that need to be cleansed. I think this goes back to verse 14. 
because you see that word there, how much more the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So we have to understand our writer refers to the blood of Christ as better sacrifices. He uses a plural term, the better sacrifices, to expound the singular blood of Christ. He's using the plural so that it connects to the old. All those sacrifices, the millions of sacrifices, and all that blood, he says these better sacrifices, uh, but it's referring to the singular blood of Christ. Uh, Philip Hughes is helpful. He says there is general agreement around among the commentators that the plural sacrifices is not a precise but a generic plural. It corresponds or is accommodated to the plural of these rites, these rituals, in the first clause of the verse. The inferior sacrifices of the Levitical system called, speaking generically, for a better sacrifice. To be specific, however, they were superseded not by many sacrifices, but one, namely the unique and fully adequate and self-offering of the incarnate Son of God on the cross in Calvary. That was a rather lengthy quote, but I think it helps to unpack and to understand this. The adjective better just marks the difference between the earthly things and the heavenly things. So much more better. So what does it mean? There's really three options. There's several commentators that go and take different ones. That the, inaugural, that the inauguration of the heavenly sanctuary had to be with blood. I've already um, let you know that I don't, I don't buy that at all. There's some that actually say Christ took his own blood into heaven and sprinkled his own blood to, to uh, uh, inaugurate it. No, I don't think that's right. Secondly, heaven itself needing to be purified. Well, we can set that aside. Third is that God's people need to be cleansed. Heaven doesn't need to be cleansed until sinful people get there, right? You and I, who <laughs> have trusted Christ. And so that's the idea. The third makes the most sense. The allusion to the heavenly sanctuary is surely being used in a symbolic way. Whatever these heavenly realities are, it is clear that they have to be cleansed with better sacrifices. And that better sacrifice, as it says in the Book of Common Prayer, is Jesus, by one oblation of himself, once offered a full and perfect, sufficient sacrifice. William Hendrickson puts it like this, without Christ's blood, does God not open heaven for us and does not accept our living sacrifices? We stand condemned before God in our sins and heaven remains closed to us. However, the blood of Christ has made heaven into a sanctuary for us that we may dwell therein. And not only is it a sanctuary for us, it is going to be a glorious place of praise and adoration in which the saints can testify of the goodness of God. We have that sneak peek in Revelation 5, and they sang a new song, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Do you long for that scene of worship? Do you long to sing that? Do you realize all through eternity we're going to be reminded about what? Blood. 
even from this song. And rightfully so. So, hopefully that makes some sense of why heaven needs to be cleansed. It's because sinful people are entering in, and so it needs to be cleansed in that way. Secondly, look with me in verse 24 to 26a, the superior sacrifice of Christ for us. Jesus appears in the presence of God for us. Now, this is one of those verses you just want to memorize. This is one of those verses you want to put on your mirror in your bathroom to be reminded of that again and again. Christ did not enter the holy place made with hands, you know, some earthly one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us on our behalf, giving testimony to a holy God that I have died and I have bled for their sins as a substitute. Please accept them by virtue of my perfect life and my sinless blood. Verse 24 really continues to tease out the truths that we see in verse 23. Jesus did not enter this earthly tabernacle, but he goes into the very presence of God. In fact, in the original, it's emphatic when it says Christ did not enter a holy place. Not's the very first word. It's not. Don't get the wrong idea. He didn't go into some earthly place. It's into heaven itself. The author uses actually the plural and all the other references he makes to the heavens in 7.26 and 8.1 and even back in chapter 1. But here he uses the singular, as one commentator said, the singular here seems to denote the highest heaven in which the true sanctuary of the dwelling place of God is located. The highest heaven, the place where we will dwell with him. Now to appear, that is to manifest himself before a holy God. For the Christian, this is true. Um, Jesus said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, this is John 14, 21, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me, will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Well, this is the word that's used here that Jesus does before the Father in heaven, before the presence, literally before the face of God is what that word means, or before his countenance, right? He appears in our behalf. This idea before the presence of God is used in Old Covenant worship, the idea of coming to worship God, um, and then also even in times of prayer, uh, looking to God for help, um, seeking God's face, as the psalmist says in Psalm 27. So mere man might have a sight of God. Moses, right, in Exodus 34, I believe, asked, let me see your glory. And what happened? In the cleft of the rock, Right? as it were, God covers the cleft of the rock and he sees his backside. You see, men may have a very glimpse, a minor glimpse, but Christ alone beholds the Father without a veil. Beautiful. The darkness and clouds of that old covenant ceremony, remember, in the, in the Holy of Holies, right? When the priests would go in once a year and you had the cherubim, and you, you had the ark with the, the tablets, the law of God inside, representing God's holiness. And where that Shekinah glory would come from in between the cherubim. That would be the only light. But the room would be filled with incense, and it would be dark until the Shekinah glory came. 
And if that priest went in, and somehow, in an unworthy manner, he would be struck down. But this idea, it's a reminder that even a high priest is unworthy. Remember, he had to offer sacrifices for himself and his family uh, even before he could offer the sacrifice for the people. But practically, what does this appearing before God's face look like? Well, we have back in chapter 7 and verse 25, turn with me there. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So he is interceding on our behalf. The apostles taught this, brothers and sisters, throughout the word, Paul in Romans 8. Who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, but who also, what, intercedes for us. John as well, 1 John, we are in 1 John 3 for a scripture reading in 2.1, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We have an advocate. We have one to plead our case before the Father. And it's a beautiful thing, this, the, the construction of uh, for us. I think the ESV at the end of the verse has on our behalf. Is that right? Anybody with an ESV? Yeah. So on our behalf, it's, it's uh, who pair. It's, uh, it's actually the idea of instead of. Uh, it's the idea of substitution. So he appears on our behalf. He appears before the presence of God for us. That's a glorious thing. In chapter 10, verse 19, he puts it like this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By our own good works? No. By the blood of Jesus, verse 20, a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his now verse 25 and 26a we can't ignore the radical differences between Christ's priesthood and the Levitical priesthood he's already developed this in different ways in chapter 7 a little bit in 8 and he's hammering it home here as well he wants these Jewish Christians to not be confused and to understand that Levitical system is old it's done it's been fulfilled in Christ. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Okay, so the writer continues to draw these contrasts with the day of atonement. You know, that high priest when on the day of atonement, when he would go in, it would, it's that blood that would be his passport or his key to gain entrance in to the Holy of Holies. And so the Jewish reader might be asking some questions, you know, hearing this or reading uh, this epistle. You know, the high priest, as high priest, Christ could, could never have entered the holy place of the earthly sanctuary. Why is that? Why not have Christ enter the Holy of Holies once in the tabernacle or in the temple and then, you know, die for our sins or something? He couldn't. He was of the tribe of what? 
Judah. He was not a Levite. He had the wrong blood in his veins. And so according to the law, he could not enter. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest presented animal of a blood of blood to God, but Christ offers his own blood. So this is striking for the Jewish reader. If Christ had offered blood other than his own, it would have been identical to the Levitical high priest. The high priest could not present his own blood as a sacrifice. Why? Because he was a sinner. He was guilty before God. Christ's death as a singular event, is central to the Christian faith. And this is the reality of what these verses are expounding. Christ does not need to be sacrificed daily. One sacrifice is enough. That's why there's stress on his resurrection and his appearance, his ascension into heaven for us. His offering is superior. doesn't need to be repeated year after year. 26a, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. And so Spurgeon answers and says this, no, there is not a repeated offering of Christ to God, nor a repeated taking possession of heaven on our behalf. Once and for all, his work is done. Jude 3 tells us, once and for all, the faith was delivered to the saints. It is a final act which is so complete, it needs no repeating so the entrance of our lord is on into heaven itself before the face of god is on behalf of his people it's a beautiful thing and then notice the 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 contrast here in 25a 26a you see the word often christ would have had to offer himself often he would have had to suffer often and then you contrast that to in verse 24 He's entered heaven itself now to appear before God. 26, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he put away sin for good. There will also be the once for all in verse 26, 27, and 28. So there's a contrast. This whole idea of this would have had to happen often, often, no, no, but now it's done. It's once and for all. In contrast to the impossible situation in 25a, offering himself often, but now he is manifested and put away sin. The Christ is a superior sacrifice. It's powerful blood. It's sinless blood. Thirdly, Jesus decisively puts away sin by his own sacrifice. And you just see that at the end of 26. But now, and the structure of this is, is but now, and then there's really four things. Uh, once and then at the consummation of the ages and then manifested and put away sin and it's by the sacrifice of himself so once for all at the end of the ages the consummation it is not that christ came at a time of fulfillment but but that his coming made the time of fulfillment between that first coming at the first coming of christ that is the beginning of the last days we are in the last days now until christ comes again which could happen at any time. So it's important to fully understand what the author means by saying Christ appeared one time. This calls to mind the phrase once for all time, which he's already hammered home in 727, in 912, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he answered once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
Paul puts it like this in Romans 6.10. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Christ's incarnation is an unprecedented moment in time where he appears in history at the end of the ages. Hebrews 1.2. And once for all time to put away sin. Paul speaks of the incarnation that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, manifested, says F.B. Meyer. What then? He must have had to exist previously. The incarnation was but the embodiment, invisible form of the one who existed before all worlds. But the glorious thing, brethren, here is that he's been manifested to what? To put away sin. If you are trusting Christ, your sin has been paid for. It is put away. The word means to annul, to declare invalid, to recognize, to make ineffective, to make it inoperative. It describes the doing away of something that had been previously established. Turn back to chapter 7. The other time this word occurs is in verse 18. Now, this is talking about the whole Levitical priesthood here. Verse 18, for one, on the one hand, there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. It's translated the setting aside there in the NAS, but it's the same exact word of putting away, removing, and gnawing forever. And that's what the Levitical system did. It's put away forever. 1 John 3, 5, it's almost identical. Uh, Andrew read it for us. For you know he appeared in order to what? Take away sins. And in him there is no sin. You got the same language. He appeared. He was manifested. For what? The removal, the putting away of sins. The taking away of sins. The removal of sin means judging and condemning sin. The son's superior sacrifice dispenses it. It expels it. It places it out of our responsibility. So the hymn writer could say, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Oh, a couple of concluding comments. Christ, uh, first of all, rest in the finished work of Christ. If you're, if you're in him and you've trusted, you can rest. This blood is effective. It's pleading for you. He's before the face of God on your behalf, on your behalf, even right now. Rest in the finished work of Christ. Get off the treadmill of good works trying to impress God. You can rest in the finished work of Christ. Christ has fully dealt with the problem of sin. Does that mean we can just eat and drink and be merry and, and whatever? No. no we, because he's done those things, we want to grow in holiness. We want to please him in all respects, as it says, because he has done that. We need to be reminded, apart from him, we can do nothing, but there's nothing more for him to do. He has secured our salvation for all time. That's how powerful this blood is. We should praise God, and especially as Thanksgiving week is this week, what an opportunity to just do away with grumbling and, and backbiting and slander and gossip and all of that and loosen your lips and praise and adoration to God. 
for what he's done, for the whole covenant of redemption, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit planning from before the foundation of the world to send Christ to die a brutal, bloody, horrible death. To send Christ to be the sin bearer of the elect people of God. All of God's holy and just wrath, he's so pure, he poured it out on his son for us on our behalf. Boy, loosen your lips. Praise him. Who will bring a charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he justifies on the basis of what? Christ's blood. To worship him, serve him as living sacrifices. But you know one thing that this text makes very clear? One time, right? He bled and died once and for all. He's appearing in heaven. The Roman Catholic Mass. The re-sacrificing of Christ over and over and over and over is an abomination to God. It's an abomination to God. It's an affront. I don't know if the Roman Catholic Bible, I know they've got added books, Apocrypha, but maybe they've ripped out Hebrews or they just don't read it because if you read Hebrews, there's no way you can believe that. Now, if you're Roman Catholic and you're here, we're really glad that you're here. Study the book of Hebrews. I don't think you'll remain a Roman Catholic or at least believe what the church teaches. It's called transubstantiation. And when the priest takes the the wafers and the the wine and and offers it up on the altar and has this Latin phrase that sounds a little bit like hocus pocus. It actually does. Um, and, and, And suddenly that becomes the body, the real body and the real blood of Christ. And it's every day the mass happens over and over and over and over and over. And it's amazing that some Protestants will even turn and go back to Rome. I think it was 15 or 20 years ago, there were, there were several um, people that I knew or knew of that actually graduated from good seminaries that went back and converted to Roman Catholicism. It's sad. Some are lured by the pomp and the show, the smells and bells and that kind of thing. Others are lured by family loyalty. You know, there's a lot of pressure for that. For in the Philippines, for example, a Roman Catholic nation, largely, there's a, a, a lot of pressure there, as there is in many other countries. Listen to the Council of Trent, 1562. This is their doctrinal standard. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and sacrificed in an unbloody manner who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The victim is one and the same, the same now offering by the ministry of priest, who then offered himself on the cross. The manner alone of being different. If anyone says that the sacrifice of the mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, let him be anathema. You see what their doctrinal standard is. If you say that's you're not really re-sacrificing God, they would say you're anathema. The Hebrews were tempted to go back to those smells and bells, the repeated incomplete earthly sacrifices of the old covenant. 
And that's why you have these warning sections. By the way, we're coming up on our next warning section in the latter part of chapter 10, but uh, there's five warning sections in here. It's, it's the, these scary warnings. Don't go back. Believe and embrace the finished work of Christ. Spurgeon says those false priests who claim to daily make offering for propitiation are traitors to God's truth and traitors to the souls of men. Hey, that's true. That's true. I think some are deceived. Some are willingly be deceived. The hymn says, Oh, for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross. The burden will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. Pardon me. Well, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, flee to him. He, he welcomes you with open arms. There is salvation in no one else. Acts 4.12 makes it very clear. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we're going to look at it next time. But if you're outside of Christ, this, these next verses should, be, should frighten you. For inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die, how many times? Once. And what comes after? The judgment. Every one of us knows we will stand before God to give an account. You know it deep down. Your conscience tells you. When the guilt within becomes so great, you know you will give an account. Even as a believer, you know that there will be a standing before God. The believer can rest in the finished work of Christ, but the one who's not, those books will be opened. Every idle word, that you have spoken, every evil thought, you will give an account for before a holy God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray. If any here are that do not know you, Lord, that you would have mercy, that you would save for your own glory. We thank you for this time uh, that we could gather together in this fashion. We do pray, Lord, that you might be merciful and kind to our state, to our city. Lord, that you would allow the gospel to be magnified during these days of tyranny and confusion. Lord, we do pray that even you might remove uh, the virus, whatever remnants of the virus there are. Lord, we pray that you would help us as your people to relish and bask in these truths that we have considered today. We thank you for that once and for all sacrifice in Jesus' name. Amen.